Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. And welcome back to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. My name is Travis. I got my brother Quentin with me, as always. And today, Q, we're starting something new. The last few episodes have been devoted to music we listened to in our youth, right? We had Mark on last week, the the guy that sold us all the CDs when we were growing up. The man behind the counter, dude. The man behind the counter. That was an awesome conversation. Uh, go back and listen to that. If you're if you're wondering, hey, what does it take to to run a record business? How do I? What are the tricks? You know, what are the what are the yeah. what's the insider scoop? Go back yeah. and listen to that episode. So yeah, you know, mainly our focus has been in the two thousands, right? Early two thousands emo. Um, I mean, mostly emo, right? So now... Mostly emo, yeah. Yeah. Turns out we listened to a lot of emo back then. So now we're, we're, we're going even further back. And we're talking about music that our dad listened to. We're covering some dad tunes. Music that we heard coming through the speakers of our dad's music room uh, while we were growing up. Or while we were driving around, you know. Yeah. Just music that, that, that we were exposed to through him. When we were younger than our former, you know, basically what were we listening to before we listened to our own stuff? You know what I mean? Before we branched out and, and found our own music. So we're kicking things off with the cars and we're going to cover their debut self-titled from 78. Uh, we're actually gonna be hanging out a lot in, in the quote classic rock vein. Uh, but we managed to get our dad on for this episode. So we've got another guest, our old, our old man. Turns out he's not doing much right now as you know. Yeah, as right. is the case with a lot of people. And um, yeah, let's just get right into that conversation with him. Um, so anyway, strap in, put, uh, buckle your seatbelt, Q, because oh, because of the cars. Because yeah, we're <laughs> talking about the car. Well, we had <laughs> we had that metaphor about the school bus when we were talking about. Um, oh, there we go. Well, I'm just saying, what's our what's our metaphor going to be now? Oh, uh, well, now we're in the. How about this? Ooh, you dude? smell that pipe tobacco, friend? <laughs> yeah. No, how about this, Q? Now we're riding around in the back seat of the Saab that he used to drive. Of that, 
in the backseat of, of the uh, of the station wagon. Let's just do that. Of the st- yeah, yeah, now we're in the backseat of the station wagon. <laughs> Dad's got his, you know, his cassette tape in, and it's the car's debut record. And let's be honest, dude, I'm kicking, I'm kicking the back of his seat, man. Yeah, I feel like we were we were fidgety kids, man. Yes, and I still I still <laughs> fidget. Um, that's yeah. a, that's a trait I think that we actually picked up from our mother. But um, who gives a shit is the real <laughs> thing. So, all right, all right, let's get into it. All right, man, we're in the back seat. We're rocking out. What's in the tape deck? The Cars debut record. Here we go. The thing that separates like musicians from, you know, just people who are interesting and have a style. A lot of musicians, pure musicians, don't have style. They only have technique. And I'm really more interested in style than technique. You're saying that you initially, you you weren't like for example when this record came out. So we're we're talking about their first record, their debut record today. So that came out in '78, and you weren't really paying attention to them necessarily. You were like you said, you hadn't bought any of their records prior to getting your hands on on the the greatest hits. I was still in radio in '78, so you know I was playing their you know first album hits on the air. So that's how I discovered them. I mean, they were on our playlist and, um, you know, um, so yeah, uh, that's how I discovered them. And probably because I played them so often on the air, I probably, um, just, you know, got tired of them and decided I didn't want to listen to them at home because I heard them all day at work. Yeah. That makes sense. We wanted to talk to you about that too, as far as like your days in the radio and whether or not you, because I think we talked about this last time we had you on, which was the um, the Larry Carlton Steely Dan episode that we did. Weren't you the you you were the program director or something like that? You had something to do with with picking the songs, right? Or am I am I remembering that wrong? That's right. Uh, at uh, an FM hit station that I worked at from about uh, seventy six through seventy eight. Um, I was the music director and, uh, and also the morning drive air personality, I think is what they called us. Um, but yeah, so I, I picked the songs and we, and we, uh, we tried to mirror hit radio, uh, tunes that, uh, were making the playlists on radio and records, which posted the key stations around the country and what their playlists were. And you're always, you know, competing against your crosstown rival for what they play and 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 how you mix it during the hour. So, the the cars hits were had tons of hooks in them, and people 
put them on the air almost immediately. So they, they were, they were great in that regard. Um, but I just didn't think they were quite as original with what they were doing as they were in their second and subsequent albums after that. Just, that was just my opinion. Yeah. But like, did you, so did they just say, Hey, here's the, uh, the billboard top 100 pick, which ones of these we're going to play? Or did you have any, cause, cause if you guys were a hit, hit radio station, you only focused on songs that were charting, right? Yeah. The record companies would send us records and we would get calls from their reps telling us which ones they were pushing and which ones were getting early airplay at some of the big market stations around the country. And then we would look at the billboard and more than that, even radio and records was a trade journal. So, um, and that was the one that posted the playlists of all the reporting stations around the country. They called them reporting stations because they literally posted their playlists for everybody. So we were seeing how much airplay the cars were getting around the country and in the major markets. And uh, so it was up to us to decide if it fitted with, uh, with, fit with our audience. And the cars clearly did. They were just, I mean, they were, they were hits waiting to happen. Oh yeah. And uh, so, you know, um, yeah, we, we played them. So dad, you, you're kind of saying like you, you were competing with the major stations. So you, you were a small town radio station. Yeah. There was no internet back then. So no radio on the internet. So the only thing you were competing against was your airspace. So if, if people were close enough to pick up your signal, they could listen to you. If they weren't, they couldn't. Yeah. So we, we were in our own comedian, in our own little universe of competition there. There was another yeah. hit radio station on the AM band and we were one of the early hit stations on the FM band. And so we were competing. So that was another thing we wanted to talk to you about, Dad, because a lot of our love for music, we also had the convenience of streaming music. And I mean, I can discover a new band, multiple bands every day um, just by using streaming platforms like Spotify, where I can click on, you know, these bands like here. If you like this band, you'll probably like this band. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you were you ever... Um, I'm going to quote Mark from last week. Were you ever, did you ever have like a hunger and a thirst for discovering bands back then? And if so, how did you go about finding new music back then? Well, first of all, there were far fewer bands recording back then because if you didn't have a recording contract, you really didn't have access to a studio and you really, really, for the most part, didn't record. So now people have studios in their bedrooms and garages and and they can record things digitally and so clean. And And they just throw them online and that's it. Yeah. So there was just a lot fewer recorded uh, artists out there to choose from. Did you ever get to play a song on the radio just because you liked it? Was that even an option? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, um, we would have the option to play songs that weren't necessarily being picked up by any of the other radio stations. Um, and we did. So when you play a song that no one else is playing, you are breaking that song. Um, yeah. So you, and, and so, yeah, we did break uh, a couple of um, songs there. And then later when I was down in the Houston market, uh, Houston Galveston market, we broke, uh, some records there too. 
Um, and, um, so it was, um, yeah, you, you could do that. I mean, you, you know, how often you play it determines whether or not it gets any, um, momentum going. I mean, if you played it once every three hours, um, it, unless it was a hit that people just were overlooking, chances are, you know, it was your own little fantasy hit, but it didn't <laughs> go anywhere, you know? Yeah. You know what? I thought just for fun, Dad, why don't you give a shout out to the call stations and the, the cities that you were DJing in, just in case someone is listening that happened to be in that city back in the late 70s. Maybe they heard you. Well, the FM station in Abilene was KFMN 108 FM. Um, the station in Galveston was KILE or KIL for Galveston Island. And that was uh, 1400 AM. Um, and then in uh, Port Arthur, it was K-O-L-E, what they call King Cole. I forget <laughs> the frequency of that station. And then- was- How many times did you play in that King Cole? <laughs> <laughs> King Cole. Never. We, we, weren't, we, weren't, we weren't into that deep of oldies rotation. Uh, and then uh, in Beaumont uh, was K-A-Y-D. Uh, it was an FM- Station, which was a little bit more progressive, played fewer hits and more album tracks and things like that. But anyway, yeah, that's where I was. Cool. So yeah, let's talk about the cars. So you had you had said earlier that these guys were you know in the in the punk vein, but obviously I think what what made them you know such a immediate hit, kind of like you were saying. And I wonder if this this is just popping in my head right now, but. You know how we, our introduction to punk, as we told Mark last week, was Blink-182. And he said, it was a lot of people's intro into punk, that or a band like Green Day, right? Because these bands had, they were more packaged, I guess, you know. Yep. And not as like, maybe aggressive or, or whatnot as like, quote unquote, like genuine punk. I feel like that's probably the case for, for the, for the cars. And then... You know, they're they're kind of more of like a new wave band as well. Like they did they, they did a lot with their with their sound, but maybe it was just kind of through the through the lens of like a maybe like the adi- like the attitude and spirit of a punk band. So yeah, Dad. Um, first off, what does new wave mean to you, Dad? Because we're you know we're just in our early we're early thirty somethings. New wave. We have all this time to to look back at all these bands. Like, what was new wave? In because I feel like that was when it was starting to emerge was the late seventies early eighties, and I feel like the cars probably helped usher us into that. You know the the early and mid seventies had a lot of um, I guess semi country influenced rock a little bit like the Eagles and the Doobie Brothers, and um, you know other you know real crossover country bands like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Marshall Tucker and Leonard Skinner and those guys yeah. right. Allman Brothers. So I think what happened with punk was um, they immediately had a more urban sound, not, you know, country at all. Right. Right. Um, But then they were um, sort of so far out there, especially the Sex Pistols and guys like that, that um, they intentionally were offensive. Right. Right. So I think that was that was part of it, the shock value. But then I think New Wave came along and they started polishing that a little bit. You could even call the police's first album classic New Wave, right? Oh yeah, but also um, it's very punk too. 
very punk. Uh, and so, um, and then when, when the cars came along, they, they were a little bit of both, but they had, they were so polished and their production was so clean and their songwriting was so original that they sort of, um, I thought set, set a bar higher than anyone else had while staying true to the new wave mindset really. Yeah. And, uh, Rick Okasik says, so actually let's name off the roster real quick. Uh, we've got Rick Okasik, lead singer. Uh, you've got Benjamin Orr, bass player, also lead singer. Elliot Easton plays guitar. He does all the guitar solos, so I guess he's the lead guitar. Uh, Greg Hawks is, is the keyboardist and drummer is David Robinson. So Okasik had said that as polished as... as you know, quote unquote, polished as they sounded when they started writing these songs and started touring, they got to where they didn't even really rehearse anymore. They just fit so well as a group. They didn't really need to do much of that. And so that's something that I feel like maybe a lot of people who don't like the cars, a lot of people have hate for the cars. And I feel like the word polished is probably one of the reasons why people don't like them because they think of them as this just this like they're churning out these hits and there's nothing punk about that well it's probably the same for a lot of um old school fans of punk you know like if you if you listen to the sex pistols and then you listen to the cars and you're you're being told that that, that you're you're listening to a punk band i don't think they would have much cred in in like the uh you know the more underground punk scenes and whatnot because because they were so polished, like you're saying. So, so who is the guy that sang "Car" right here in my car? Remember oh, that? yeah, that was Gary Newman. Gary, okay. So, you know, that was the sort of the programmed, almost robotic punk stuff that came along, and I think that the Cars had a little bit of that because there wasn't a whole lot of improvising outside of Easton's solo work. Everything was very, very uh, programmed and. Uh, and everything was produced so well. And I actually think their keyboard work um, is what really set them apart and gave them um, a completely different, much more sophisticated sound, at least the way I heard it. So, yeah, yeah, I feel like that's the new wave that's side of it. That's the new wave side of it, yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what perfectly like ushered them into the 80s too. Like you can even hear it on this first record that, you know, they were, they were playing around with some of that synthesizer stuff that mm-hmm. dominated the 80s, you know? Yep. Yeah. And, Dad, it's funny you mentioned Cars by Gary Newman. That came out in 1979. So that was just a year later. So, Trav, you want to play our first clip? To get yeah, some tunes going? Okay. So here's the funny thing about, I feel like, so, you know, this is no filler. We play the songs that weren't singles, right? But because of these greatest hits records, that came out that probably a lot of people have familiarity with the first two songs that we're playing, especially the second one, you've probably heard these songs. Um, and I guess, I mean, that's, you know, says a lot about the cars, like even their, their non singles were hits. Right. So anyway, uh, this very first song that we're going to play is called bye bye love.
I don't think there's any punk in that at all, right? No. But I mean, I think okay, if I were to try to, you know, pick something out of that that's that's punk, maybe his voice and like his delivery, his vocal performance, maybe a little bit. But at the same time, it's like not at all. I don't know. But like, here's a quote. So here here here's a quote from a music critic uh, for the the New York Times and the Rolling Stones. His name is Robert Palmer. He described the Cars musical style. He says, they have taken some important but disparate contemporary trends, punk minimalism, the labyrinth synthesizer and guitar textures of art rock, which to me, I think of talking heads, right? The 50s rockabilly revival and the melodious terseness of power pop and mix them into a personal and appealing blend. So I think that's what it comes down to, right? Like, I think we we get too hung up on, on genres, right? Because... In my head, I have punk rock like filed away as one particular sound, you know, but it's the fact that they took all of these different things and packaged them into a completely different sound that you can call them, you can call them punk if you want, but they're, they're a lot more than that, right? You know, from my perspective, when you start talking about the subcategories of rock and roll, um, everything falls into, in my opinion, two different categories, either blues based or everything else. And this is part of the everything else part. And then you start dividing that up into lots of different subcategories. But um, there's just no there's just no blues in it at all. There's no blues keyword yeah, or anything like that. Right. And so it's and that's just that's part of what New Wave and Punk were. They were unblues, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like Dad, you had mentioned this to us before, and with that quote bringing up rockabilly. I mean, that's that's pre-punk. And you said Buddy Holly, uh, you know, must have been a huge influence on Rick Ocasek and his style of singing and even their writing styles. So, you know, you want if you want to take punk as far back as Buddy Holly, then the cars are very much punk. Yeah. I mean, if you mention Elvis Costello, you know, he clearly has um, Buddy Holly in his veins, you know, and and he's considered one of the fathers of New Wave, too. Yeah. So. So I have a um, another quote here from o- o- Okasik as far as his influences. Uh, he says here, My taste was to always go for that mix, even back in the 60s. I obviously was a huge fan of Dylan, but my other favorite band was the Velvet Underground. I always went for the left side of the music brand, too. I loved the Velvet Underground and the Carpenters. And there's an emphasis on the word and, meaning like, you know, he had a very like a varied uh, mixture of, of influences, but that's interesting. The carpenters, you know, <laughs> and yeah. I, maybe you hear some of that in, in the cars a little bit, maybe. Cause like you said that, you know, that first quote I said from, from the critic, they, they're kind of tapping into that rockabilly revival, which I guess was happening in the seventies. I didn't ever really get into to that, but I mean, there was that one band, what were they, Shanana or whatever. Didn't they do that? Not sure, but okay. Well, that was definitely anyway. that was definitely something that was happening in the punk world as well around the seventies. Yeah, that rockabilly revival. You can't ignore the Ramones and Springsteen too, because they had elements of new wave in what they were doing, and certainly punk too. That's true. Yeah, the Ramones are very poppy, like pop punk. But the um, but the Ramones to me are are, are way more like centered, punk centered. You know. Mm-hmm. 
maybe that's just the power chords because they weren't writing stuff that was too complex. Because like you said, the cars, what makes the cars so amazing is how complex their arrangements were and all the different experimentation that they would do, you know? And my guess is Akasic was a perfectionist in the recording studio. And, and that probably comes into play with even the Carpenters who uh, were renowned for having almost perfectly produced records, you know? Yeah. All right. We got another clip here from Bye Bye Love. So let's listen to that. to get that guitar solo in it yeah well i always thought that was a great way to end a track but yeah there's the there's the guitar playing that you fell in love with dad yep and that's um, all the way but, on their, back on their first record mm-hmm. but i gotta say i feel like that's kind of uh, kind of a blues oriented solo a little bit yeah you're right that solo clearly could have been in a, a thousand rock songs yeah and a classic rock song maybe even you know like a like a zeppelin or mm-hmm. but i guess that's what makes them so great is that they they really did take all of these different sounds you know and put them into the car sound yeah so before we move on i want to play a clip from this um radio interview that Cossack did back in 79 i believe 78 actually so this is the same year that this came out um dad you're probably very familiar with this uh radio show called interview does that sound familiar to you dad i don't think so no man they did not have very creative names back then well interview i-n-n-e-r view all right Ooh. Mm-hmm. okay so uh dj's jim ladd he sound familiar to you dad nope <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, apparently this was an hour-long radio interview show. It was the first one that became syndicated in the U.S. and that focused on rock artists and their music. So it was a, just an interview show, all rock music. And it went from the mid-70s all the way to the late 90s. Um, and what's cool is they actually pressed these interviews on vinyl. You can pull up Discogs. There are over 160 of these um pressed onto vinyl which is really cool so anyways um jim ladd kind of presses okasic on whether or not any of what you see in the cars is calculated or you know on purpose basically just saying like you know if you're gonna if you're gonna say bands like i don't know toto or boston you know like those uh session musician bands like Okasik was trying to say, we are not those bands. Um, so anyways, I'm going to play a little bit of this clip here. You know, I get upset that, you know, so many bands uh, get signed that are the same when there's so many other bands who have interesting and creative things to offer who could probably do albums for like 
$30,000, whereas, you know, a label might sign some used band or a sort of combination band, like a guy from here who never made it and a guy from there who's stale on this and put them together and give them $200,000 to record, like, a nice clean studio album mm -hmm. that offers nothing but a satin suit and a TV rock star move. Okay, but on the other side of this, mm -hmm. you guys are one of the most calculated bands I've ever heard about as far as packaging goes. I mean, real calculated. Well, that's, uh, I don't know what, what calculator. I mean, I don't know who the calculator is. Uh, the band, the cars, we decided to wear colors, red, black, and white. That's, that's an idea, not a calculation. You know, I've had these shoes three years. It's longer than the cars have been together. I mean, it's not so calculated. There's a lot of eccentric people in the cars. Interesting. So the reason I wanted to play that, um, I know a few people that just despise the cars. Who are these people? I'm not going to name names. <laughs> but... I think the main thing is for 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 people that don't like the cars, I think they put them in the category of, and it's funny that I keep bringing up Boston, but bands like Boston where where they just think of them as just these, you know, lifelong seasoned musicians that all just come together almost like a super group and just release all these polished songs with little to no effort, you know, just almost like a cash grab. And he's saying, I mean, yeah, we... It, kind of comes across that way that we may be one of those bands um you know we chose to wear all black white and red as a band but it wasn't like a, something that some record producer told us to do you know like it, it, there's no calculated yeah. anything about us it's just there's eccentric uh members in the band and we just happen to you know just have this style and this this feeling behind us but it's not like a it's not fake, you know. I can tell you somebody who probably hates the cars, and that's Deadheads, right? Grateful Dead fans, they would hate the cars. Oh, well, they probably hated all of the all the eighties. But do you think that's stuff. because why? Why would you just because of the the cars are the opposite of a jam band? I mean, if you've ever seen their them in concert or check out YouTube videos of their concerts, their songs that they play in concert are almost studio perfect. Uh, they don't improvise. They don't drag on to, you know, long five minute uh, solos of junk. And uh, <laughs> that makes deadheads go crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, isn't that um, kind of like fish heads? Yeah. But kind of like Boston is known for that too. Right. Where they were so yeah. perfect. They were perfectionists in every, yeah. every aspect, including like their live shows. Right. Yeah. I mean, even other than the, the times when Eddie would take the stage and just jam for 10 minutes, that was the way Van Halen was too. They played their songs as they were written and recorded and you heard them live that way. So, yeah. I mean, that's probably what, what this guy was trying to get at with the calculated. Yeah. That's what he was trying to, he was trying to push him to, to admit something like that. Um, but you can see how, like when you look at them, yeah, they do look like they had, you know, a, a, a reason for doing everything, you know what I mean? Especially if they're all wearing black and red. I mean, but to Ocasio's well, point, the like Beatles that's a, first three albums, right? They, sure, they, sure. They, but they were wearing but was that, the same suits, right? But were the Beatles doing that because of a label or did they do that 
I know I've, I know I've seen so many documentaries on the early days of the Beatles, and I probably have that information in my head somewhere. But was that was that the producer or the record label that said, "Hey, let's throw these guys in the same suit"? Because when you see the early early footage of them playing at that tavern, they were wearing. I mean, they looked like they looked like punk rockers almost. They were wearing like leather and stuff like that, and had their hair slicked back and stuff like that, or at least yeah. McCartney was. Yeah. So that is exactly what Okasik is saying. We are not that, and I, I am not a fan of of record labels that will that will create bands, you know, over and overlook bands that that are have really good potential but aren't necessarily polished. Hmm. Let's do the next track here. This is gonna be a long episode. So, um, this this next song, if you have seen the fast fast times at Ridgemont High, then you know this song. There's an iconic scene in, in cinematic history that is almost like this song is almost synonymous with that scene. This is the I can't not picture that scene in my head when exactly, it and it's been parodied before. Like there's a Family Guy parody of this same song is used, obviously. But anyway, it's a killer song, so we're gonna play it, and it's not a single. So everybody's heard the song, and now you're gonna hear it again. This is called Moving in Stereo. Down. 
You know that little that little synth riff in the beginning, the yeah. That's one of my favorite moments in any song ever. I just <laughs> love. I always I've always loved that, and I'm always waiting for it. And like, it's just I love little moments like that that get thrown in that seem like just sort of this this little thing that happens really quickly. But to me, like that that is a key part of that song. Yeah, I wonder when that little ditty got formed if it was just something that he was doing while like in a particular session during recording and it just stayed in there because the last time i was thinking it doesn't happen again does it <laughs> i don't know it might but i don't think it does so dad was this a song that you heard early on when it first came out or was this a, a greatest hits song that you visited later no this was early it, it wasn't even on their greatest hits cd so oh. believe it or not. which is funny because uh, because of that that scene in that film. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's why it, it has such, you know, such a, uh, such notoriety. Mm -hmm. I'm reading a little article that I found online about, um, this exact scene where this guy's writing about how, um, you know, he says that moving a serial was actually not on the soundtrack. So a lot of people back then, they, he, you know, as he says, he was forced to go out and buy the car's first self-titled record so that he could listen to it. Oh man. And then that's what turned him on to the car. So a lot of people, you know, may not have ever heard of these guys until this movie. You know, they're probably, you know, wait, you know, waiting in the theater as the credits go by to to see if they could, you know, figure out what the the band's name was, you know. When did Fast Times That's the come only out? option you had. Uh I don't know. <laughs> Let me look. 1982. So 4 years later. Yeah. And that's that's after their I mean, shit. By then, they're by then they had already had their first three records come out, hmm. four records. Sorry, they had all the way up to shake it up. So that's kind of interesting that that perhaps. I mean, I don't know about this, but maybe maybe that movie put them on the map even more so than all the singles that had come out before that. You know, I don't think so. <laughs> so this guy was just an idiot. Then. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> he, it's not been the first car song that he really liked because it was a little bit different than some of the others they had, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but it's on there. Here it is on their first record, you know? But yeah, I love how his voice kind of goes up an octave at the end and he's almost, he's yelling kind of. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe this is an accident, but all three of the tracks that we're playing today are Benjamin Orr and not Okazic. So that's interesting that we're doing a cars episode and, you're not hearing Okazic's uh, vocals other than the interview clips that we're playing. But uh, um, I didn't realize Bye, Bye Bye Love is also or, huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's interesting because, I mean, Okazic has such a great voice, an iconic voice, but then or also, I mean. Man, his, I love his voice. His, yeah, especially on, I mean, my, probably one of my favorite car songs that features or is drive. And I don't know what record that was on, but um, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a killer, a killer track. And everybody knows that one too. Heartbeat city is the classic acoustic vocal. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we have one more song here. We have two clips and this, this week is the first time that I had ever heard this song. Uh, Cause it's the very last track. I too am kind of guilty of, of really only being familiar with their singles and, and the stuff that's on the greatest hits records. So um, this song to me 
I feel like kind of flirts with progressive rock a little bit. When I heard it the first time, which again was like a couple days ago, I immediately thought of like a yes, you know, or a uh, or a, a, a moody blues kind of progressive rock sound. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Dad, because I know you're a mega fan of both yes and moody blues. But to me, I think this song is very unique amongst their their catalog, and maybe I'm wrong, but. Here we go. This song is called All Mixed Up. It's the very last track on the Cars debut record. Dad, what are your first impressions there? Uh, very uncars in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. I had never heard that song before. Very good. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we were hoping that we we could get your your hot take on on the song for the first first time. But yeah, what what an awesome song. I mean, it had a lot of moving parts to it. But do do you see what I mean by a little little progressive rockish? Very much. Yeah, no question. Yeah, because like there's like a almost like a little horn section almost that kind of comes in. That's probably the the keyboards that or whatever. synthesizer, but, yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, Yes did that too, you know. All oh, sure. the time, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it kind of, it, uh, it was drawn out a little bit more, more like the, the prog rock. Yeah, um, it's more kind of almost... Um, a little bit more, the, not theatrical, but like... Um, cinematic or thematic yeah. or... I even or, heard some Jess, Jefferson Airplane in some of the the, uh, the vocals, you know. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have another clip here, so let's just get right into it here. Here's the next clip from All Mixed Up.
So that's how their their first record ends, right? There. Yep, that's the end of the record there. That's a great song, man. Yeah, I love great. that. Yeah, and that almost sounds like a saxophone solo at the end, you know? Yeah, um, it could be. But yeah, here's what I always think to myself: like, even on their first record, they were capable of writing songs like that. They did write songs like that. So I would love to hear a whole album of stuff that sounded like that from them. You know, are there are there B sides out there that that I'm not aware of? You know, like you know, B sides on on singles that were never put on the major releases that that sound more like that. Like, give me more of that. You know, who wrote that song? Do you know? Well, um, Wikipedia doesn't really. Although there is a link I can follow here. Wow, look at this. This was a single in the Netherlands. Okay. <laughs> wow. Re- well, no, I'm sorry. It was released as the B side to Good Times Roll. So there you go. It was a B-side on a single. But um, it, I'm not getting any information on who who wrote it. Well, no. Songwriters, Rick, Rick Ocasek. Okay. Wow. So, of course, it was Orr on the vocals. But, um, yeah. I love that track. That's great. Yeah, very good. So uh, there is a deluxe edition of this debut record that was released in 99. So I guess 20-year anniversary. And they have a bunch of demos on here. And I'm trying to see here. And yeah, there's some demos on here that didn't make it to the record draft. So there you go. I'm going to have to go back and listen to those for sure. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. I, I read Okasik had said once that um, he actually thinks of this debut record as their greatest hits. <laughs> wow. That's how much he loves the songs on this record. That's cool. That's not unusual for first albums to have great stuff on it that people have been working on for 10 years or more before they got the recording contract yeah. and they never do anything better than that. That happens a lot. Yep. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. I feel like that's the case with a lot of, we, we tend to focus on the debut record when we do an artist. Like we always go to the debut. It's typically our favorite record of the band. Because I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. Like that's before the pressure of a record label, you know, that's before they've signed any contracts where they have to put out, X number of records over however many years, you know, and then there's less expectation on them because they're, it's just them in their raw form, you know, and their those songs could have been written over a, a long period of time, 10 years, right. 10 years. And then their next album, they've got to crank out new songs in four months. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously the cars kept putting out hit after hit. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? They never stopped making great music, but, but yeah. What an awesome debut record. I mean, yeah, no kidding. It, when you look at the tracks on here, it's it's crazy. So, yeah, I mean, it does seem like they were calculated, if not like super well packaged, but I guess Okasika just saying, no, that's just who we were. Yeah, it's just who we were. And, and we played well off of each other. And you said that there was never any like arguing over who should do what or, you know, how a song should be structured. I mean, kind of like we just we just found out Okasik wrote all mixed up, but or is the one who sings throughout the entire song, you know? So I wonder how they came to that decision. Yeah. You know? Was it just take hey, a, Hey, your voice will be better suited for this. Yeah, probably for this uh, range, you know, well, they were best friends. Those two guys. Yeah. Apparently, how were they? apparently uh, when or died, Okasik went into a state of depression. Apparently lasted over six months. It was tough. And yeah, I mean, I've heard, you know, you hear stories like that where, where band members, I mean, they are like family members, you know, they spend so much time together, like mm-hmm. on the, on the road, you know, in the studio, like, right. yeah, it makes, it makes sense, you know? And that's why, that's why like 
you know, band drama, like the, like all the Metallica stuff, there's a whole documentary devoted to their family drama, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. So I wasn't sure when we could play this, but I wanted to play it so badly when I found out about this. But speaking of them going back, you know, way back, Okasik and Orr were in a Crosby, Stills and Nash style folk trio band in the early 70s with a, a lead guitarist named Joss Goodkind. Not sure who this guy is. He, there's no links to who, if this guy ever did anything else. But they released one album in 73. It's like the really pretty harmonizing kind of folky rock. Uh, and it failed to chart. So, Dad, I don't know if you've ever heard of a band called Milkwood. Nope. That's new to me. All right. So, I want to play a song that features uh, Okasik as the lead singer. And this is going to fuck, this is going to blow your mind. Um, I'm excited about this, man. Oh, I've never dude, heard this either. It's, it's really great. So, this is Okasik and Orr? Yep. And okay. they're, they're harmonized together, but Okasik is the lead singer in this song. So here is a song from Milkwood's 1973 album, How's the Weather? So this song is called Dream Trader. Yeah, definitely a Crosby, Stills, Nash knockoff. <laughs> Does that sound like 72 or what? <laughs> right, yeah. 73. Well, yeah. the funny thing is if you look at photos of them from that era, it doesn't even look like Okasik. He's got a mustache. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Orr, looks, he looks like Stephen Stills in this photo. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's funny. But, yeah, this just goes to show – just how how talented these guys were. The fact that they could write stuff like this, and then, you know, six years later, they're writing the car stuff. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, and also, like, you think about how long they've been writing and, and playing music together, too. 
Yeah. Um, it makes a lot of sense. But can you imagine, like, <laughs> when I heard this, I was like, man, like, what if Milkwood was the one that made it big and we never had the cars, the you cars, know, and yeah. they just continued doing music like that? Crazy. Yeah. So, Dad, that's that's an example, right, of, of, of so no one knows about Milkwood because they never made it to the charts. So they never made it to the radio. Right. And that's how it was back then. Yep. I mean, you know, album rock was really getting into high gear in the early mid 70s. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was being played on progressive rock stations. So people might know about it. Yeah. But uh, certainly not mainstream. It's a really good album, though. It's really pretty. Um, it just blew me away when I when I heard it. There was a lot of groups that sounded just like that, though. Yeah. So they, it's hard to stand yeah. out with that sound. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, they bring all of that to to the cars, if you think about it. I mean, even if you don't hear songs that sound like that, like that's still in their, you know, that toolbox or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And the guitar work. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's it. That's all we got for this 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 album. I thought that was a excellent conversation there, fellas. Yeah. It's almost like we've known each other <laughs> at least my entire life. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's funny, like talking with you, uh, talking with you about music and stuff, it just, it makes sense that, that Quentin and I love talking about music so much. It's in our DNA, I guess. Yeah. It's your DNA and, and our experience is what we talked about. Well, for my, my, well, still to this day, whenever you and our older brother Spencer get in a room together, you talk about sports. <laughs> but when we're in the room together, we, we usually talk about music because Quentin and I don't. Don't give two, two flips about <laughs> sports. Yeah. Um, but anyway, all right. So, um, yeah, that's that. That's that's our that, that'll wrap us up for for our coverage of the Cars debut record. Um, obviously, I mean, we don't, this is one of those. Yeah, I feel like the last few episodes, Q, it, we've been talking about such obscure bands that, that we kind of encourage people hey go back and make sure you listen to the record all the way through and stuff like that yeah i feel like we don't have to say that with a band like the cars you know well but people hey, are we just found out that dad you you never listened to this album all the way through nope never did so, so yeah go back and listen to uh the cars debut record <laughs> that's true go to you know how about pull up the cars debut record and push play on the on the titles you don't recognize because that's i mean <laughs> It's only like four songs, but it's going to go on my um, Spotify playlist today. So yeah, there you go. Anyway, again, that that track at the end, all mixed up. That's going on my list of mm -hmm. favorite Cars tracks for sure. All right, so let's do our our what you heard segment, and um, we're actually going to have Dad. You actually brought a track to the table here. I did. So do you want to go first? Yeah, so uh, this track was from 1975, which happened to be my senior year in high school. And uh, the connection to the cars is that this uh, particular artist, uh, in his much later years, um, joined the revisited cars called the New Cars and toured with them. And I'm really not sure how many of the original cars were in that band. I know that Elliot Easton was. But this was after the passing of Orr, so he wasn't. It looks like Elliot Easton and Greg Hawks were, were in the new cars. Okay. Uh, but I knew Okasik wasn't, and they brought in Rundgren essentially to do vocals. And he was uh, a very out there guy in the, seven, in the 70s. 
and um, he had a few great uh, albums, but had a cult following, big cult following, really. And uh, this was probably uh, one of his two or three biggest hits ever. Um, and uh, brings back a lot of memories, but he has a connection to the cars. So I, uh, the song is called Hello, It's Me. All right, here we go. Hello, It's Me by Todd Rundgren. I don't know if I've ever heard that song, but I, I like it. I like it a lot. Well, it was the opposite of filler. It was uh, a top 10 hit. It was a big hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm on Wikipedia. It, it, it did uh, reach number five yeah, on the, on the Billboard Hot 100 he, chart. He had uh, a unique style. Uh, that whole album was very interesting. And the interesting thing about that album was that that record was all, that particular song was recorded in one take. And so on the album, it just sort of trails off as they just, you know, kind of finish up and, and, but it was all one take. So pretty, pretty Hmm. impressive. Yeah. I could definitely see how he could do, he could stand in for Orr's vocals when he, when he covers Carr's Mm -hmm. songs. Yeah. Well, you should YouTube uh, Todd Rundgren with that song and you'll probably get um, a YouTube video of a TV show, probably. Um, you know, the Midnight Special or some of the other TV shows where they had artists on, you've got to see what he's wearing on one of them. It's uh, pretty extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> Was he trying to do like oh, a... He's wearing a jacket that's uh, over, pretty much over the top. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, you, I mean, at that time you have to compete with, with Elton John, right? A little bit like that. I mean, you know, his, you know, he had makeup on, almost looked like Alice Cooper. So it was pretty <laughs> interesting stuff. Yeah. 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 I guess, I mean, if you're... If you're going on TV, you know, you're like, well, I got to stand out here. Yeah. So to to me, music like this never really caught on past the 70s. Like this sound is so the 70s. What what would you call it? Soft rock? 
yeah. adult contemporary yeah. well, is something I'm seeing here. Well, and you know, the, the, what came to an end in the 70s, really, in early 80s, was, you know, the predominance of top 40 music where, you know, you could hear Led Zeppelin, Barry Manilow, Smokey Robinson, The Spinners, Todd Rundgren, Olivia Newton-John, all in the same hour. So, yeah. you know, that, that kind of variety, you know, you, you, um, you, you got it all in one hour cause they were trying to, to hit everybody's taste. And so it, it created some really unique challenges for mixing radio songs in an hour. You know, the, the playlist was a challenge and, and getting the mix just right was a challenge cause you were constantly fighting people pushing the button in their car radio to change when they didn't hear a song they liked. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you're tuning in for Zeppelin, you're going to switch it off when Rundgren, Rundgren comes on, right? Yeah, Rundgren had a pretty strong following in the rock world. He, he wasn't as pop as you think. He had some real real rocky stuff on, on his – if you listen to that whole album, a lot of it's real rock and roll. So yeah. Okay, so this was his ballad or whatever. Yeah, Something Anything is the name of the album, and there's some really, really good stuff on there. Yeah. Cool. All right, Q. I'm gonna go last, Q. So okay, because I've got, I've got something special in store. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so this is a band that. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a shout out to the vinyl subreddit community again. Um, so that it's kind of like a message board community of people that that love listening to music on vinyl, and basically, you'll share share a, a picture of the album art and then kind of talk about what you love about the the album so i have found a ton of really great music through this community and uh, one person posted an album by a band called yellow magic orchestra or ymo for short have you ever heard of them dad nope have not so they are a japanese trio um they're an electronic act from japan um synth pop electro pop uh, they've been releasing music since, uh, I think, 78. So same time that the Cars was happening, this was happening in Japan. The thing about these guys, from album to album, track to track, they're all over the place. Um, there's songs that have kind of like a, I don't know, almost like a, I don't like it. Trav, do you know like like uh, the Human League? Yeah. Or um, uh, like... Even um, man, what's, uh, Devo, stuff like that, you know, like really yeah, just sure. polished, melodic, um, catchy stuff. And then they have more um, like ambient, almost um, kind of in the same vein as Wendy Car Carlisle. Is that her name? Oh, you're going to say Wendy Carlos. Wendy Carlos. Um, yeah. From of like The Shining. The Shining. Score. Or I'm, I'm talking, I'm thinking more Tron vibes. Okay. Um, that kind of atmospheric kind of stuff. Um, the album that I listened to theirs of theirs all the way through is called Technodelic, which came out in 86. And this is considered one of the very first albums to feature mostly samples and loops. So they were a huge influence on later, um, electronic, you know, sample heavy songs. So the song that I'm playing today, I picked for, cause I think all three of us will enjoy listening to it together. This is one of those more like cinematic, um, like Tron kind of vibes. Really cool song. Really, it's like equal parts rhythmic and atmospheric. It's awesome. So 
This song is called Light in Darkness. Very cool. Yeah. Dad, what'd you think? I think it could have been the soundtrack to an 80s video game for sure. <laughs> oh, man. So if you go to uh, their first album, it's even more just straight up like 8-bit sounding music. It does have a... You got my strong... you got my interest peaked right now. Yeah, Travis, uh, go back to the... I think it's just a, a self-titled. So is it safe to say that, that you would not have heard... You would not have heard this band in, in America back in the seventies. You think? No, because that's that's what I love about the current era that we live in and how accessible this stuff is. Yeah, is you can just you can discover all of these bands for the first time that you never would have heard back when it originally came out. You know? Yeah, and you know, uh, back in in the days when I was in radio and the the record uh, companies would be promoting certain songs over others. Um, you know, they would send, you know, a box of, at that time, 45 RPMs out that were singles. And they'd be promoting three of the 20 that they may have sent you in a week. Um, and a lot of times I thought that the three that they were promoting were nowhere near the best songs out of the 20. But, um, but because they were promoting, for some reason, they had a lot of money behind a certain band or 
uh, somebody there at the company just thought that was the sound they needed at that point in time, at that time of year or whatever. Uh, it was all about creating a hit or uh, creating an artist um, from from nothing, you yeah. know, first hits. Yeah. Created that, so it was interesting. There was a lot of great songs that never got airplay; uh, they just faded into nothing, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. So that is a band called Yellow Magic Orchestra, also known as YMO, and that was a song called "Light and Darkness." All right, Travis, what you got for us? Just bring it on home. Okay, so um, yeah, I think everybody is aware of Taylor Swift's record that just dropped i've heard i've heard good things so i'm not playing a taylor show song but i guess the point i was trying to make was like we're getting a lot of music right now that would not exist if it wasn't for artists being quarantined that's the case with taylor show's record that is blown up all over the place she was set to tour she should have been touring right now on her record that came out i think last year or whatever but she wasn't able to and so she wrote this record that came out, you know? So, you know, I don't think there was much press or whatever. It just kind of dropped and there it is, you know? So anyway, here is another band, Q, that is near and dear to us. And actually, Dad, you're actually, a, you're a fan of of this particular guy as well. Um, so back in March, a band called The Whitest Boy Alive. Oh, Yes came out with a new single called Sirius, which was the first single um, since, you know, I don't know, almost a decade uh, since their last record. So dad, Whitest Boy Alive consists of uh, a fella named Erland Oya, who is one half of Kings of Convenience. And I know you're, that's one of the bands that we introduced to you that you actually liked quite a bit, if I remember right. Yeah, love it. Love those guys. Amazing. Whitest Boy Alive is is one of his side projects. Erland Oya is like a super prolific musician. He's always making music. The other guy, the other half of Kings of Convenience just isn't, he just doesn't, at least you can't find it. He doesn't put solo records out. He doesn't have, I think he did have a side project, but anyway. So if you're a fan of, of this guy, there's always music to, to hear from him. Anyway, so Whitest Boy Alive, very similarly to Taylor Swift was set to do this festival and they were in, basically they already flew down to this location. This was in March. So right before things started going into lockdown and it was this music festival in, in Mexico and they started to prep for this performance and then things went on lockdown and the festival was canceled. But as part of their contract or whatever for this, uh, this festival, they had, been given four days worth of free studio time at this place called the Hotel El Ganzo in San Jose del Cabo. So two of the Whitest Boy Alive, guy, Whitest Boy Alive members, including Ireland and the drummer, Sebastian uh, Maschat, were able to make it to the studio and they put out a record basically while they were in quarantine. The other members weren't able to get there. But anyway, long story short, this is a sort of like a whitest boy live set of, of songs, but not really. Cause it's only two of the members. But um, anyway, I've got one track here and Q, what I loved about this record is that it reminded me of, you know, those, those live performances of their new songs, Kings of convenience that we latched onto. I will never forget it. Yeah. So Kings of convenience before they put out 
their following record after after writing on Empty Street, they had recorded and written these songs and were playing them live. I don't know if they had recorded them yet, but they were playing them live. And we latched onto these YouTube videos because it was the only way you could hear these new songs before they even came out on a record. Anyway, but they would have those like count-ins and like these live things, right? These live elements to them. So this record has that vibe to it because, you know, it was kind of thrown together quickly. But anyway, I'm going to stop talking. We're going to listen. This song is called Bad Influence. One, two, What'd you think? Oh, I loved it, man. I love everything that guy does. It's great. Okay, so that sounded like um, it could have been Bert Bacharach. From yeah, the I was thinking that too. <laughs> yeah, that's a good reference. I couldn't think of the name, but yeah, Bert Bacharach for sure. The the piano for sure. Yeah, but so to me, that almost sounded like a Kings of Convenience song. It had the harmonizing that, was had, there for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. more so than a White Spoiler Live song. So the White Spoiler Live stuff has got more. It's more disco. You know, it's more disco centered up up tempo but anyway um yeah so the album is called quarantine at el gonzo uh which is the name of the studio cool but um anyway i have one more thing here i know this is getting long but i mean we, we don't have to keep this in if we don't want to but i thought this was really cool at the very end of the record they have a song it's not really a song it's called credits i'm gonna let you guys hear it because i think it's really cool Thanks for listening to Quarantine at El Ganso. My name is Erlen Oya. I sing, I play guitars, and I take on the role of producer on this album. Hello, dear listener of this album. My name is Sebastian Mashad, but everybody calls me Mashad. 
And on this record, I sing lead vocals on some tracks, backing vocals on others. I also play the flute, the trombone, the piano, the Juno synthesizer and the Rhodes, and harmonium. Also, I play a lot of percussion instruments, like the tambourine, the claves and the tabachin, which are a special kind of shakers which grow on trees all around Baja California. Hi, I'm Bear Kate, and I sing all sorts of vocals and play acoustic and nylon string and electric guitars and even a sitar on this record. Also, one of the owners here at Hotel El Ganzo, where we recorded this record during the quarantine. My name is Jorge Aguilar. I am playing drums, um, also some percussion, mostly congas, and harmonium in a couple of songs. Hello, my name is Paco Rosas. I play the bass guitar in this album. I'm also the recording engineer and the mixing engineer. I just thought that was that was really cool. You know, how often do you get to hear everybody that was involved in a record actually hear their voice and and say list out the instruments that they they played, you know, and even like the engineer, you know, gave him his credit. I thought that was really cool. And I wish more records did that. Yeah. But I think it makes it more special cuz like they said, you know, this was a quarantine record. It's something that shouldn't exist, you know, but it does because of the the pandemic, you know. And I just thought that was really cool. Certainly, a lot more personal than yeah, yeah, here. yeah. And if you if you're fans of Kings of Convenience and you've seen their live performances and stuff, like they are always super personal with their audience. They are always interacting with the audience and stuff like that. So I'm not surprised um, that something like that would be thrown on at the end there. But it's just cool to hear all the instruments that that you're going to hear on this record. And like you heard all those instruments, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Um, but anyway. That is cool. I, feel, I think more albums should do have a credits track like that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's cool. Because otherwise you have to open up the liner notes to see that stuff. Yeah. But it's cool to hear the voices, you know. Anyway. So, yeah, that's that's that. That's our that's our episode here. This is our first episode devoted to dad tunes. And um, thanks for chatting with us, Dad. Yeah. Thank you for hosting me. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um you can find us on our website, nofillerpodcast.com, where you can find all of our previous episodes, going back to episode one, or episode zero, I should say, because um, we have a teaser episode. Uh, but on those on the site, you can find show notes uh, for each episode, which includes track lists. So every song that was played on the episode, you can find on the website, as well as any sources that we cited. If you want to read more about the band that we talked about, you can also find us on the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is the podcast network for music lovers. And that's it. Um, that'll do it for us today. Uh, we'll- well, hey, hey, now. Hang on, Jeff. I got an outro for us. Okay. So I just found out that the Smashing Pumpkins covered You're All I've Got Tonight, as their, and they, they threw it up as a B-side to Bullet with Butterfly Wings. So we can't not play... A Smashing Pumpkins Cars cover, so uh, that's gonna that's gonna outro us out today. Uh, thank you as always for listening, and uh, yeah, we'll be shouting at you next week with some more dad tunes. Um, all right, my name's Quentin. My name is Travis. Y'all take care. <laughs>